be looking at verses 1 to 6 this morning. We are getting close to the end in our study in this book, and some have been asking what we're going to do this summer. We'll be looking at selected passages uh, from Isaiah as we uh, go through the summer and talking about uh, who our God is, who is like the Lord. So that's going to be another, I think, very uh, good study for us. But today we're in Hebrews 13. I like to read for us verses 1 to 6. Keep on loving each other as brothers, and do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison, as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated, as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage, thank you for your word. And I pray that today you would strike the mark Whatever it is that we are wrestling with in our own life or a word we need to hear today, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would do that. And as we think of what it means to love one another in the body of Christ, Lord, would that be true of us, that we would be a church that truly loves one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin by looking actually at the end of chapter chapter 12, to set up this message. At the end of chapter 12, we are given this majestic vision of heaven. It is a scene that one day all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord will see. That's what's so wonderful about this particular passage. And listen to these words again from Hebrews 12, verse 22. He writes, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. Can you imagine that day when we will see that new Jerusalem, that heavenly Jerusalem that John describes in the book of Revelation as having walls that are made of precious gems. It is brilliant in his glory. It has streets paved with gold. It has gates to this city that are like one large pearl. And he's trying to find words to describe the beauty, the value, the preciousness of this place. And he describes it as truly glorious. And he says there that this is the city of the living God. And you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You know, can you imagine coming toward this city and the streets are lined with these angels that are there, full attention. Or you walk into the city and you see the angels that are there on the ramparts or they're there on the the walls of the city or the rooftops and they are there in all of their glory and splendor. And you think of what an angel is like and his brilliance where when men saw them in this life, they would fall down in fear before them. How awesome will that scene be to see these thousands upon thousands of angels who are there. And he goes on to say that you have come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. 
We're going to see all those who have gone before us in the Lord, who have died and who had trusted in Christ and who now are alive and with him. And we'll be coming through those streets and you'll see faces and people of those that you knew, family members and friends and those who have come to know Christ. You'll be walking along and he says, we will come to God, the judge of all men, the only sovereign, the only true God. There is no other. And we will see that Shekinah glory of the Lord. And we will see the spirits of righteous men made perfect. He states it that way because at this time when we die and go to be with the Lord, we are in that spirit form awaiting the resurrection of our body that will come in that future day when Christ returns and the dead in Christ will rise and we will be glorified in our resurrection body like Christ and we will enter into that new heaven and new earth. He tells us that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, the one who makes all of this possible by his sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I mean, think about that. Think about what awaits us. Think about that day when we will see Jesus face to face. This one whom we have loved and worshiped and served in this life, the one to whom we sing our praise. And now you will see him with your own eyes. How glorious will that be? And doesn't that just stir your heart? I mean, isn't that what you are longing for at the deepest level? You long for that day when you will be made new. You long for that day when life will be free of its toil and suffering and the evil that is part of this world. And we will see Jesus. And we will be with him forever. Praise God. Praise God. That's our hope. And that is what is meant to really spur us on in this life. The writer of Hebrews has made it very clear that we are pilgrims on a journey. And we are making our way towards Zion, our heavenly home. And how are we to conduct ourselves along the way? Well, in our attitude toward God, we are to worship Him. We are to love Him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. We are to obey Him. We are to fear Him. We are to show reverence and awe before this holy God. And how are we to relate to one another? Well, we are to have love for all people, but especially toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is what this passage is about in chapter 13. This is how we are to live as Christ followers in a fallen world. This is the kind of care that we should have for one another. And he really bullet points it in these six verses. And that's what I'm going to do this morning, just to touch on the five things that he mentions here. He tells us, first of all, that we are to love as brothers. The way that this is written in Greek and it's brought across into English here is that it is a present imperative it's called it is a command that we are to do today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day i mean it is ongoing we are to keep on loving as brothers we are to do it continually jesus himself said by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another 
And he isn't saying that an unbeliever can't experience or show love. They can. That is one of God's gifts to all mankind. But among Christians, there should be such a quality of sacrificial and unconditional love that people notice the difference. Historically, the church has led the way in doing this by its care for the poor, the sick, the hungry, the least of these in our world. Churches and Christians have led the way in establishing schools and hospitals and relief organizations, in abolishing slavery and establishing child labor laws, working for the good of all mankind in our world, and we continue to do this today. But it also concerns how we treat one another in the church, that we are to treat one another with an extraordinary love, a grace, a forgiveness, a willingness to come alongside or forbear with one another when we are not finished products yet. And we may stumble and fall or we may say and do something that is hurtful or we may disagree with one another even, but we are to do that with grace and with love. There's an example, a marvelous example from history of George Whitfield, the evangelist, and John Wesley, the preacher. And those two men lived at the same time and they communicated with one another. They were extraordinary leaders in the church, but they disagreed in matters of theology and they disagreed strongly on some particular matters. Whitfield was a Calvinist, placing great emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Wesley was an Arminian, placing emphasis upon individual's choice, freedom of the will, and they saw that issue differently. And yet here's what Whitfield wrote to his brother in the Lord, John Wesley. He said, my honored friend and brother, hearken to a child who is willing to wash your feet. I beseech you by the mercies of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you would have my love confirmed toward you, why should we dispute when there is no possibility of convincing? Will it not in the end destroy brotherly love and insensibly take from us that cordial union and sweetness of soul, which I pray, God, may always subsist between us? How glad would the enemies of our Lord be to see us divided? Honored sir, let us offer salvation freely to all by the blood of Jesus, and whatever light God has communicated to us, let us freely communicate to others. I mean, isn't that a marvelous statement? He's saying, John, I know we disagree. We look at this different, and we don't need to keep focusing or talking about that. What we do have in common is so much greater still, our love for Jesus and our desire to see men and women, boys and girls, come into a relationship with him. And so let's preach that word faithfully as God has given us the light. You know, wouldn't that just be, that's a marvelous spirit. It reflects what Augustine said when he said that in the church, in essentials, there should be unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity, love. In essentials, concerning the person of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for our sins, the heart of the gospel, there needs to be unity in things that are not as clear to us. We need to give grace 
I mean, we're, we're searching to understand what the scripture says. And so when we talk about even all the details of the Lord's second coming, and we don't know all of it for sure, you know, those aren't things to break fellowship over. Those are things to keep studying the scripture. And in all things, show love. Secondly, the scripture calls us to practice hospitality in verse 2. And he says, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. When he talks about entertaining strangers here, though, it is in a context. It's in the context of welcoming other believers into our home. In those days, uh, inns were not healthy places for Christians to stay. I mean, if you stayed in an inn, sometimes they were very dirty in terms of fleas or vermin that were there. Uh, they were dangerous. There were reports at that time of sometimes when an innkeeper had taken people hostage and wanting to ransom. There were other times when there were thieves or pickpockets there who would steal what you had while you were sleeping. Uh, they were also immoral. Many of them were more like a brothel than they were a place to stay for a night. So the exhortation to open your home was to other believers as a way to advance the gospel. They were to welcome traveling evangelists and itinerant preachers. They were to give them a night's lodging and then bread for the next day to make it to the next place that they were staying. Uh, there were times when some people took advantage of that. There were false preachers, and so they were to exercise discernment on who they welcomed. And if a person was overstaying their visit, well, you were not obligated to keep them for extended periods of time, but a night or two and send them on their way was expected. That was the gift of hospitality that you were to give to another. And he says, remember that some by doing that have even entertained angels like Abraham, Gideon, Manoah, those stories that are in the Old Testament. Now, what he is saying here to us, though, is don't think that whenever you open your home to a missionary or another believer that you will entertain an angel, but do expect to be blessed. I mean, those times when we have done that, when we have had people stay in our home that were missionaries who had come to visit our church or traveled to this area, I mean, we have been blessed by those conversations that are so rich. And when you open your home to other Christians, to those that are serving in other parts of the world, we learn so much. Those are the kind of things that he's talking about. But hospitality, it is still an important ministry in the church, but it can also be used for evangelism. In 1990, Clark and Ann Petticord were working with Campus Crusade for Christ in East Germany. And this was just after the fall of the Berlin Wall and they wrote this note in their newsletter. They said, last week, the former communist dictator, Eric Honecker, was released from the hospital where he had been undergoing treatment for cancer. There is probably no single person in all of East Germany that is more despised and hated than he. He has been stripped of all his offices. Even his own communist party has kicked him out. He was booted out of the villa where he was living. The new government refused to provide him and his wife with accommodation. They stood, in essence, homeless on the street. And it was the Christians who stepped in. 
Pastor Yui Holmner, who is in charge of a Christian help center north of Berlin, was asked by church leaders if he would be willing to take them in. And Pastor Homer and his wife, and they decided that it would be wrong to give away a room in this center or to give away an apartment that their staff needed. So instead, they took the former dictator and his wife into their own home. It must have been a strange scene when the old couple arrived. The former absolute ruler of the country was being sheltered by one of the Christians whom he and his wife had despised and persecuted. In East Germany, there's a great deal of hate toward the former regime, and especially toward Honecker and his wife, who had ruled the educational system there for 26 years with an iron hand. Her name was Margot, and she had made sure that very few Christians could go on to higher education. Well, there are 10 children in the Homer family, and eight of them had applied for further education in the past years, and all had been refused a place at college because they were Christians. And yet, in spite of that fact, they welcomed this couple into their home. Pastor Homer was asked why he would do this, and he spoke very clearly. He said, Our Lord challenged us to follow him and take in all who are weary and heavy laden, both in soul and in body. I do not know if Eric Honecker and his wife came to Christ. But I do know this was a powerful witness to a watching world. When there are opportunities for us to minister to others, to use our home as a a quiet place for missionaries who are visiting or to use it as an outreach for our neighbors and friends, God wants us to do that, to practice hospitality. Thirdly, he calls us to remember those who are suffering. He said, remember those who are in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. To remember a brother or sister in prison was risky. I mean, if they were there because they were a follower of Christ and now you identified with them, I'm sure there was fear, wondering if you would be arrested too. But if inns were dangerous places to stay and they were bad, I mean, prisons were even worse. The prisons didn't provide sustenance and food for these people. It was those on the outside who brought food to them and who provided companionship. And so here were these believers who would risk their own safety to go into the prisons. Aristides wrote this, He said, if they, the Christians, hear that any of their members are imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if it is impossible that he may be delivered, they deliver him. In other words, they bring meals to him. They bring sacred books. They read from the scriptures to him. If there is among them a man that is poor and needy and they have not an abundance of necessaries, they will fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with food. What a remarkable testimony of the early church going out of its way to care for its members who are in prison because of Christ, even to the point of going without, they may supply what someone else needs. We are still to pray for those who are persecuted and to remember our brothers and sisters around the world. And we are to care for those who are suffering 
in our church, in our fellowship, and assist them with their needs that they have. And we do that when we use our benevolence fund to come alongside to assist, or when we pray for people through our prayer chains, through our small groups, and we remember their needs, we are doing what God asks us to do here. Fourth, we are to keep marriage holy. In verse 4, he says that marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. This is a strong statement on marriage, and it needs to be said loud and clear. Marriage is holy and sacred to God. It was given to mankind for our good, for joy and companionship, and for the care and instruction of children. And God's definition of marriage has not changed. It is one man and one woman coming together in that faithful, monogamous relationship. God stated that at the very beginning in Genesis 2-4 in the scripture we read, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. Marriage was ordained by God before sin entered into our world. It is the basic building block of society. It is to be honored by all. And I fear that what we are doing today in our nation, in our world, is a very dangerous social experiment that will not have a good outcome. We are redefining marriage according to our terms and our own wisdom, and we are thinking that this will be somehow good for children and for the future when time will show. Time will show that God's word is true, and he is not to be mocked. But his word is the best way to live. Marriage is ordained by God. And when the scripture says the marriage bed is to be kept pure, that's a figure of speech for the sexual aspect of marriage. It is a positive statement that sex within the bounds of marriage is holy and good. But outside of the bonds of marriage, it is sin and God will judge all sin. And so he comes and he warns that God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. The adulterer defrauds his or her spouse and dishonors God. It is taking something from your spouse. It is bringing something into that relationship that should not be there. And sexual immorality also does that same thing. You know, I think of when um, young people begin to date, and whether it's in uh, teenage or high school, I mean high school or college years, you know, and they're in those years where they are dating, God would say to you that you should treat that person you are dating as you would want someone to be treating your future spouse. I mean, think about it that way that the person that you may be dating or seeing that time, you are to treat with honor and respect because if you don't marry her or you don't marry him, then someone else probably will in the future. And how would you like someone to be treating your future wife, for example? Wouldn't you want them to be treating them with respect and honor, to be gracious, to be affirming? so that they might continue to know what God's will is for their life in this regard. 
Sexual immorality robs people of their virginity. It brings something into a relationship that you can't change, you can't erase, it can be forgiven, but it will always be there in some aspect. And so God's definition here is so good, it is protective, it is for our benefit. And sexual immorality here would include both sex before marriage, includes pornography, homosexual sex, incest, polygamy, polyamory, all of these different things that people engage in today because God knows what is best. And He loves us and He wants us to experience the richness and fullness of marriage as He has defined it. This statement on marriage also confronts two errors that were present in the first century. On one side, there were people who thought that being single and celibate was more holy than marriage. In other words, if you really want to be spiritual, you need to remain single all your life. But that's not true. That's not what the Scripture says. Paul was not more holy than Peter. The Apostle Paul was single his whole life. Peter had his wife and would take his wife with him on some of his missionary trips. One was not more holy than the other. There were also many in the first century who thought that chastity was an unreasonable demand. I mean, they would look at this idea, one man, one woman, faithful for life, as an unreasonable demand. You have got to be kidding. You know, that's the same attitude that some people have today. Uh, this, a few uh, weeks ago, Time Magazine had an article on monogamy and wondering if monogamy was dead in America. And for some people, it seems that that's the attitude that they have taken. It was also true in the Roman world. In the Roman world, it was common for a man to have a wife for his family and to have a mistress on the side. Prostitution was part of temple worship at pagan temples. There were male homosexual prostitutes and there were female prostitutes. So what we are seeing in our world today is really not so different from what was going on back then, but it is to be different in the church. That's the point here, that just as in this first century God is calling the believers here to live differently, He is calling us to, leave, to live differently in our world. And it really doesn't matter how the world defines this or what its attitude is toward marriage or relationships between men and women, God's standard is the standard that we are to live by. And God says that those who honor me, I will honor. If you want to experience God's blessing in the area of relationships, then choose to follow what God has said. And abstain until marriage and in your marriage relationship, be faithful to your spouse and honor God in that way. And fifth, keep your lives free from greed. And we see that in verses 5 and 6. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid what can man do to me? 
Can you imagine how those words were an encouragement to people who were sacrificing to help those in prison and wondering if they would have enough themselves to live on? And God said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I will provide for you. Or those who were fearful of what was going to happen, would they go to their death? Would their suffering lead toward death? And God would say, I am your helper, and I will be there by you. What can man do to me? It's interesting how many times in Scripture greed and sexual immorality are also mentioned in the same passages. We see it in 1 Corinthians, we see it in Ephesians, we see it in Colossians where these two things are stated together. And why is that? Why do you think both of those things are mentioned in the same context? And I think it's because both are self-centered. Both are called idolatry. Both of them really are about me and my pleasures, my wants, my desires. It's not thinking of the other person. The greedy person pursues pleasure and selfish gain, whether it is sexual or financial. And instead, the Scripture calls us to be content because God is our security. It isn't money or power or human wisdom or things that we own that are going to be our security. It is God who gives us our daily bread. And so our hope and our confidence are to be in Him. God is our helper. God is our provider. And never will He leave us or forsake us. So how much do we really need? I mean, that is one of those hard questions that all of us need to wrestle with, bring before the Lord and say, God, how much, what is it that I really need? You know, we live in a world today where we've got these great extremes. On one extreme, there are at least 700 million people who do not have access to clean water. 700 million people do not have this basic necessity of clean water. Every year, half a million children die from a waterborne disease. It's terrible. I mean, what is going on in our world when we think that we could, we could address this, and thankfully there are ministries and outreaches that are going on to dig wells and provide clean water and education to help people in this area, and yet still so many do not have that basic necessity. I think of the gospel, and I think of two billion people who still have not heard about Jesus and need to know him. That's why we continue to need the church to raise up laborers and to send them out to the unreached people groups of the earth and why we are also engaged in that in our church. And we need to pray and give and ask God to raise up laborers from our congregation as well who will go and serve in these different parts of the world. And on the other side, we have such extreme wealth in our world. I think about a movie director. I'm not going to name his name. He's somebody who's had these blockbuster films. He's selling his $184 million yacht. And he's replacing it with a larger model because he's reportedly outgrowing the meager 282-foot-old one. And the new vessel is going to be 18 feet longer and cost $250 million. It's a boat. You know? I mean, it's a boat to have people on, and he's got to spend $250 million for it. 
there are those great extremes in our world, and we find ourselves in the middle. And we need to wrestle with, God, what is it that you want me to do with what you have entrusted to me? And how can I be part of the solution that will bring the gospel to those who have never heard it? And how can we work to bring these basic necessities of life to people who need it and do that in the name of Christ? The scripture calls us to be content with what we have. Jesus said, don't store up treasure here on earth. Don't store up for yourselves treasure here where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's the truth of the matter. That where we invest ourselves, what we give to, our heart will follow and be drawn to those things. So this is what love means. This is what love for our brothers and sisters in the church should look like. We are to love one another unconditionally, fervent and ongoing. Our love is to be generous. We are to open our heart and our homes to advance the gospel. Our love is compassionate. We are to care for those who are suffering and remember those who are persecuted. Our love is to be holy, honoring God's standard for marriage, not just in that area, but in all areas, to strive to be holy. And love is also not self-seeking or greedy. Love is content. It trusts in God and his word. Let's pray. Father, what a rich passage this is that is just filled with practical wisdom. It's sometimes more than we can take in in one message. And so I pray, Lord, that if there's one specific thing that you want us to take from today, that we would do that. Would you just make that clear by your Holy Spirit and impress that on our heart? And help us to be a church that loves one another in this way and joins with you in your work in the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.